Well, good morning to you, brothers and sisters. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. I would have you know, on this day in history, 208 years ago, November 12, 1815, Elizabeth Cady was born into this world to a family of means. Her father was a member of Congress and would later become a Supreme Court justice. Elizabeth would abandon the faith of her father in search of justice for women. She married Henry Stanton, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's mission in life became women's suffrage. She wanted to end all of society's suffering for women as women were oppressed under the tyranny of men. She once said, quote, the Bible and the church have been the greatest stumbling block in the way of women's emancipation. She wrote a best-selling book titled, The Woman's Bible, which is described as a provocative examination of the Bible that questions its status as the Word of God and attacked the way it was being used to relegate women to an inferior status. Elizabeth Cady Stanton helped advance the cause for women by holding the first women's rights convention in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, for 300 women. At the conference there, she was writing and proclaiming to these women the Seneca Declaration, in which she said, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. And so I ask you the question this morning, was Elizabeth Cady Stanton right? Did she help ascribe to women their greatest value? Is a woman's worth found in securing her rights, voting rights, working rights, income rights, reproductive rights? Did our Creator design us to fight for our rights? Did Elizabeth Cady Stanton end women's suffrage? No, she didn't. Women's suffrage ends, friends, in the emancipation of the soul from slavery to sin, which was secured by Jesus on the cross. By bailing on the Bible, Elizabeth Cady Stanton actually further enslaved women, the very ones that she was trying to free. You're in John chapter 4, where the Apostle John presents the emancipation and end of suffrage for a seedy Samaritan woman by the grace of Jesus' living water delivery to her soul. Her emancipation came with one new supreme right. Her new supreme right was that she would be able to be called for the rest of her life and all of eternity a child of God, one who knew her Messiah, personally. The Bible alone ascribes the greatest value to women who are made in God's image and likeness. Since creation, men and women have misused and abused the words of Scripture to seek the enslavement of women and others, but it is only the Word of God that legitimately sets women, men, children free. In fact, there is no greater woman's suffrage movement that happens in all of history than that which is promised by God beginning at Genesis 3.15 and secured by Jesus on the cross in John 19.30. Emancipation from sin is the need of the soul of every man and woman, and in Christ alone, men and women are set free from slavery to sin. And this is what you have in John chapter 4. Before we share the glory of Jesus' salvation and emancipation of the seedy Samaritan woman for a fifth week in a row, allow me to remind you this is a premeditated salvation appointment. Jesus' work in Jerusalem was done. His next stop of great significance was lunch at Jacob's well in Samaria with a Samaritan woman where Jesus would feast on the spiritual food of his father who purposed in eternity past that this woman must be saved at this time. Jesus is a savior. No one can stop his premeditated, predestined salvation regardless of how sinful and rebellious someone may be. Jesus' salvation is partial. It is. It's partial. It goes to God's elect, predestined children who were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world, whose names are written in the book of life. And Jesus' salvation is perfectly impartial. None are saved because they deserve it. Not one is saved because they deserve it. In fact, you have to be saved because you're undeserving. You can't save yourself. We see the Samaritan woman 
In her, we see that Jesus must overcome her ignorance, hostility, immorality, and failed theology to bring her to the place of worship in spirit and truth. And she is not the only one premeditated by Jesus for salvation on this day. There is a considerable spiritual harvest which will result from Jesus' intentionality, love, and care directed at this woman who will be the headline salvation of a Salvation Samaritan weekend. At age 80, the Apostle John is rejoicing as he writes the gospel account of Jesus' life, especially in John 4, when he recalls the living water delivery made by Jesus to this woman in Samaria in AD 30, in contrast with the salvation that didn't come to Nicodemus in Jerusalem just a few weeks earlier. I told you for a couple of weeks now that in John chapter 4, Jesus, or John describes Jesus tilling soil for a spiritual harvest in Samaria. John reports in John 4 eight aspects of spiritual cultivation that prove Jesus' great care in saving lost souls. It's in our text today. John presents eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil telling, which resulted in significant spiritual fruit, even a massive spiritual harvest. The first of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling is number one in your notes, Jesus' timely coming. This is the first of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. We see it in verses one through six, Jesus' timely coming. Jesus arrives in Samaria right on time. Jesus pre-planned to save this woman's soul, and he was not late for this appointment, which is the case with every spiritual second birth. No amount of ethnic hatred or hostility could prevent this divine encounter, which John recalls by saying in John 4.1, Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, at that time, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee to the north. And he had to, he must needs pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied because he's human from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was noon, the sixth hour. This is a lunchtime appointment where Jesus doesn't require physical food because he will be feasting on the spiritual food of living water delivery, even salvation purposed for this woman's soul. The Father had appointed the salvation of the Samaritan woman, and she will herself arrive at the well right on time. However, her salvation won't happen until after she's proven to be a total spiritual failure. We find that she's a total spiritual failure because Jesus handcrafted spiritual tests of her character for her, which brings us to the second of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling, the tests of character seen in verses 7 through 20. Tests of character in 7 through 20, the second of eight reflections of John. Jesus spiritually tested the content of the Samaritan woman's character on the points of submission, humility, spiritual thirst, honesty, and morality. We see these spiritual character test by Jesus of the Samaritan woman as we continue reading in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, a test of submission. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how do you, sir, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's a test of humility. She said to him, sir, you have nothing with which to draw, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, thirst, will never thirst ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's the test of spiritual thirst. The woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come back here. It's a test of honesty. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had 
five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly, the test of morality. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place that men ought to worship. How did she do on these five spiritual tests of her character? She failed miserably. We see in her responses that she's argumentative, hostile, offensive, accusatory, condescending, and rude. She's focused explicitly on the physical world because that's all that matters to her. She's open to the idea of living water, but only in so much as she reaps the spiritual, the physical benefits of Jesus' living water, the physical benefit of ending thirst, and the physical benefit of ending travel to Jacob's well, because she would love to avoid the scorn and the shame that comes from the other women because of her many sexual sins. She's just like Eve in the Garden of Eden. She's not interested in eternal life, you know, that tree where you just go pick the fruit of eternal life. No, not that one. She's interested in the object that will seemingly provide the best physical world experience for me right now. She wants an experiential life for self, not an eternal life with Jesus. And as a result, she's a miserable wretch. She totally bombs Jesus' five tests of spiritual character. She's caught, exposed, embarrassed, overwhelmed by Jesus' picture-perfect insights into her private, sexually promiscuous life. Instead of humility and confession and repentance coming out of her, She wants to take the bonus portion of Jesus' test, the test of theology, which requires a sampling of her greatest theological prowess. So she offers it. She serves up her theological sampling as a metaphorical shove in Jesus' chest, you could say, as if to tell him, back up, Mr. Prophet Man. Get out of my personal life and my personal business. However, Jesus will not allow this conversation to end without the third of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling in Samaria. He's going to till the soil with theological correction. Number three in your notes, theological correction, verses 21 through 24, where Jesus preaches a mini two-point sermon on worship, which is aimed at correcting her failed worship and teaching her the content of true worship. True worshipers worship God in spirit and truth. This is Jesus' theological correction for her, which is intended to till the fallow, fornication, weed-filled field of her life. And we read Jesus' mini-sermon of theological correction in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and truth. God requires worship, friends, in location and content. Not physical location, be that Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. True worshipers worship in the location of their spirit, their inner man, their heart, their soul. True worshipers don't worship in lies and schemes, the cunning, crafty errors of men. True worship requires the right content of worship. The right content of worship is truth. Truth is a person, a person whose name is Jesus. There we go. Isn't this glorious? The man named Truth is teaching Truth to save the soul of a super sinner so that she can stand before the person of Truth face to face, worshiping in spirit and truth. Imagine the grace of a Savior so good. After Jesus gives this glorious grace and grand theological correction, the Samaritan woman is aggravated to the maximum. Verse 25 is where John tells us the woman said to him, I know. That Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, this guy, Messiah, will be the one to declare all things to us. Now, friends, this is a two-handed shove, theologically speaking, into Jesus' chest. The second from her. She's saying, hold up, Mr. Jewish prophet. I don't appreciate you attacking Samaritan theology. I'm not going to stand for it anymore. Messiah is coming. We know this much. And so why don't you just end your theological correction of me And we'll just wait for the true Messiah to show up and teach. At the height of her hostility toward Jesus, 
she receives his greatest grace when he makes his truthful concession. The fourth of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling is when he makes his truthful concession. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, that Messiah guy that you're talking about, that guy, I who speak to you, I am. This is a divine declaration that matches the divine name of God in the Old Testament. In the Greek, it is ego, me. He's saying to her, I am. I am your Messiah. I am Yahweh. I am God. This is grace. To choose to make this revelation to a person, to choose to make this revelation to a woman, of all people, why this woman? Why does she receive such grace? This wasn't for the disciples. They didn't hear this. This wasn't given to Nicodemus. He didn't hear this. The answer is this, friends. Jesus loves her. Jesus loves this woman. He has loved her from eternity past. Her name is in the book. He loves her. He would never not love her. He was going to grace her. He has come to place his salvation into her heart. When she was seeking love in the arms of six men over the course of the last 20 years or so, you might say, he was jealous for her and intent on saving her soul on this day, in this fashion, with this conversation, and he did just that. He saved her soul. He saved her eternally. He crushed her soul under the weight of his claim of deity and his living water delivery. He personally breaks through all of her barriers and tears down all the walls of her little kingdom of self in seven words. This truly is premeditated salvation, the height of Jesus' grace, the total expression of his love for her. Friends, what is happening in her heart at this time? What is happening with all of her bad theology? What is happening to her sin and shame and guilt and pain? It, it seems as though all the wickedness in her life is just melting away. You could almost say that the living water is washing and cleansing and flushing all the filth out. What is the effect of Jesus' living water delivery? There's a boldness and a confidence that comes over her, as we'll see. Can you imagine and can you even begin to understand what Jesus' grace to this woman does for women's suffrage? This is a male-dominated society. Yet Jesus withheld this revelation of deity from Nicodemus in Jerusalem so that he could share his deity with this woman in Samaria. What does this tell us about Jesus' value, dignity, and respect for women? What does it say about the Bible and the Apostle John who record Jesus' extra grace to a woman? We learn that Jesus' love and salvation are impartial, unbiased, void of sexism, racism, and bigotry. Truly, the end of all women's suffrage is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as is the height of women's value. It's found at the cross in the person of Jesus. And as a result, Jesus' truthful concession that he is Messiah results in her total captivation with him, and she wasn't alone in this. But this brings us to the fifth of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling, total captivation, number five total captivation, seen in verse 27. There are three instances of total captivation in the text, which we read at verse 27. At this point, specifically at this point, not earlier and not later, at this very moment, designed by God, that's when Jesus' disciples came. And they marveled that he was speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? They went out of the city and they were coming to him. The disciples are captivated. The men of Sychar are captivated with Jesus and they're coming to him. The Samaritan woman is captivated with Jesus. She left her empty water pot in front of him and ran on home. She came to Jacob's well, friends, with two empty vessels, her water pot and her soul. 
One remained empty at the feet of Jesus. The other was filled to overflowing by Jesus' rivers of living water, which he poured all over her dead, dry, fallow field of fornication weeds life that she had been living, washing and cleansing her from the inside out. What do you think? Is she captivated with Jesus? Is that why she left the empty water pot and ran away? How profound was this moment in her life? My friends, the greatest hope that I could possibly share with you through the retelling of this story now is that Jesus would be captivating you in the same way that he was captivating this Samaritan woman. What are the chances that you need Jesus' living water today? What are the chances that you came here today full of your own filthy, vile, wretched sin? Are you saved? Are you needing to be captivated all over again by Jesus' power in saving you? Or are you not saved? And just now, today, you're hearing Jesus saves unworthy, hostile sinners. And you like that message. Doesn't that sound good? Jesus is the one, the Savior of the world, who saves unworthy, hostile sinners. Is that what you are? It's amazing that he would choose to draw you in here today, but that's exactly what he does in giving salvation as the Savior of the world. He wants to crush hearts of stone, and he wants to breathe into you eternal life and give you rivers of living water. Either way, whether saved or unsaved, I pray that you are captivated with Jesus, just like the men of Sychar and the Samaritan woman and the disciples, who prove, the disciples do, for the, from time to time that they are sinners just like the rest of us. For instance, they're captivated with Jesus, that he is speaking to a Samaritan woman, and for a moment, they hold their tongues and they don't ask any questions, the questions that are on their mind, and for that, we say, good job, guys, way to hold your tongues. But what happens next proves that their captivation with Jesus fades. It fades away, like all of us. Our captivation with Jesus fades, and we get caught up in physical world concerns, and that's what goes on next in the text. Physical world concerns dominate these men. Just like the Samaritan woman and all the rest of humanity, the disciples are prone to prioritizing physical world realities over spiritual world realities, which brings us to the sixth of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. Tedious consumption. Number six, tedious consumption. Verse 31. You see, in Samaria at this time, a spiritual harvest of biblical proportions is raging all around Jesus and the disciples. And yet, for the life of them, these men are so dense, they can't see the forest for the trees. They can't see the harvest for the fallow ground. Perhaps they bought really good food in Sikar. Perhaps they really wanted Jesus maybe to taste a particular flavor of hummus with tahini and souvlaki, flawful. This combination they had and they brought it back. Perhaps this is what's going on. That sounds really good, actually. It reminds me that there's a great Mediterranean place on Division. <laughs> Have you been to that place on Division? Oh, no. I'm doing it now, too. You see, the temptation is too great. The temptation is too great to leave the spiritual world conversation and entertain our tongues and our bellies with the temporal delights of the physical world. We're all prone to tedious consumption, the consumption of food, which at times can distract from spiritual food, salvation, living water delivery, and the harvesting of souls into eternal life. You need only look at the stains in our carpet to see the stains in this room and the carpet to see how spiritual world realities and the preaching of the Word of God are negatively impacted by the tedious consumption of coffee. No offense to those who are holding their coffees now. Please hold on tightly. And now, if I didn't lose you at the mention of hummus, I've surely lost you at this comment on coffee. I, I apologize. Please come back. Come back. Join me. Please return with me to the spiritual world conversation in Samaria in our text. We're focused on Jesus' spiritual harvest in Samaria and captivated with Jesus, just like the disciples. But they lost sight of the spiritual world when the Samaritan woman walked away. And we read in John 4.31, meanwhile... The disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples were saying to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's important to note that Jesus' thought here is exactly the same as Moses thought when speaking to the Israelites on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses says, and God humbled you, Israel. He humbled you and he let you be hungry. And he fed you when you were hungry with manna, manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He did this so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What a powerful lesson for the disciples. The Father's words are Jesus' food. The Father's mission will be accomplished. Jesus never lost focus of his spiritual purpose because he is God. He perfectly completed the task for which he was sent to satisfy the wrath of God against sin on Calvary's cross when he declared it is finished and expired and allowed himself to die only to rise again to newness of life three days later, all on purpose, all very intentional, mission accomplished. Where Jesus had a mini two-point worship sermon for the Samaritan woman at the well, you could say here that he has a mini two-point commissioning sermon for the disciples at the well. Point number one would be, end your tedious consumption, guys. Concern yourself with the consumption of God's Word. Point number two in this commissioning sermon advances the consumption to action. As Jesus says, embrace today's commission. The harvest is ready, guys. Embrace the commission. Go evangelize the lost. Reap the spiritual harvest, sow the seed of salvation, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the approaching men of Sychar. They're coming now. It brings us to the seventh of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. The seventh of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling is number seven in your notes. Today's commission. Halfway through Jesus' sermon, we look at today's commission. Verse 35. We read Jesus gives the disciples today's commission By asking a setup question in verse 35, a setup question, he says to them, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Some folks consider this a proverbial statement, a truism, an axiom by which to live that is a well established fact that after sowing, you must wait four months to reap the reward of your labor. John MacArthur says, More likely, however, This statement indicates that the incident at the well took place in December. It's a chronological statement, not not an axiom, not a proverb. It's a chronological statement. That this, this event took place in December, four months before the spring harvest in April. MacArthur says, no such proverb has been recorded anywhere else. And the normal time between planting and harvesting was closer to six months. Now, either way, As a proverb or a chronological reference, Jesus' question is meant to illustrate a looming absurdity. His question is meant to illustrate a pending miracle. He's got in mind a quantum leap in spiritual germination, not agricultural germination. Spiritual germination. A quantum leap. With great excitement and anticipation, Jesus declares in Chapter 4, verse 35b, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are now white for the harvest. Look, guys, can't you see it? Lift up your eyes and see the spiritual harvest making its way toward us now. You believe that harvesting is going to happen in four months' time? No, there is a harvest today. Jesus is referring to the men of Sychar who are on their final approach, descending into Jacob's well, to come talk with Jesus, who might just be their Savior like he was the Savior of the Samaritan woman with whom they just spoke. Jesus is here mixing metaphors with full anticipation that the disciples will follow him 
out of their strictly physical world way of thinking and into his spiritual world way of thinking. Jesus is pointing out the coming spiritual harvest. He's pointing out to them the coming spiritual harvest. D.A. Carson says, Jesus at this juncture is simply pointing out that by ordinary reckoning, there are four months remaining until harvest. But in the salvation historical plane, the harvest has already begun. It's as if Jesus is saying, according to Carson, you think a certain gap must exist between sowing and harvest, but I am telling you that I have just sown the seed and the harvest is already taking place. Jesus' point is, expectations of harvesting are being exceeded. Boundaries and harvesting are being removed. Agricultural limitations are being obliterated, spiritually speaking. Because look, guys, the spiritual harvest is walking to us now. The imagery here is ripe. As the men of Sychar are descending on Jacob's well, William Hendrickson says, we should bear in mind that by this time the procession of Samaritans was becoming plainly visible. Though the grain harvest may still be four months off, the soul harvest is ripe for the plucking even now. And John MacArthur says Jesus was using the grain growing in the surrounding fields as an object lesson regarding Sikar's men's approach because their white clothing was forming a striking contrast against the brilliant green of the ripening grain. Turn in your Bibles to Micah 6, verse 15. Micah 6, 15. Jesus is... The patient, gracious, long-suffering rabbi fully anticipating that the disciples will see the glorious spiritual harvest that he had created and is anticipating even at this moment as they wait at Jacob's well. Consider that this whole scene is unfolding because God has elected people for salvation and it is Jesus' great joy as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to personally deliver salvation and living water into the souls of all those whom he has chosen, but only ever in the appropriate and appointed time. Today's commission involves the coming spiritual harvest of many sinful Samaritan men, all because of the grace and great love of God in Jesus Christ, His Son, for these many chosen Samaritans. Can you imagine the look of satisfaction on Jesus' face as He's talking with the disciples at this point? How much joy is radiating out of the Savior of the world? How much delight does He have in speaking truth to these men about what's happening spiritually speaking but even to look out and watch the men of Sychar on their approach. Jesus sowed the seed of salvation into the heart of a Samaritan woman at the well in a very intense conversation, and she ran off. He graced her with living water, the living water of which he spoke. And then at that same moment, Jesus was found reaping that harvest. And from that time, that Samaritan woman began sowing the seed of salvation into the hearts of men, of, of the men of Sychar, who are now approaching Jesus and the disciples. Significant spiritual work had been done by her, by the Samaritan woman's testimony, but also by the Holy Spirit, who was stirring them on, drawing them to come find out. And now it was time to reap the harvest. And so this agricultural metaphor of harvesting is being stretched to the maximum because of the same day cycle of spiritual sowing and reaping that Jesus is presenting and Jesus is even delighting in. This same day cycle of spiritual sowing and reaping. This is a day of spiritual harvesting glory. Sowing and reaping spiritually on the same day. The metaphor is further being stretched by reapers reaping a spiritual harvest which they themselves did not sow. This isn't right in the Jewish mind. The biblical proverb, as you know well, is you reap what you sow. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. Further, Peter and the other disciples came from Galilee where they were themselves fishermen. And they know well, you eat what you catch. And so the stretching of this agricultural metaphor into the spiritual harvest of souls needs further explanation. You're in Micah 6.15. 
where Yahweh is declaring his condemnation and judgment and punishment of Israel. And the punishment includes this in Micah 6.15, where Yahweh says, You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with its oil. You will tread the grapes, as it were, but you will not drink the wine. The reward of sowing is reaping the harvest. That's the reward of sowing, is reaping. Yahweh's punishment for Israel is no reaping after you've done the work of sowing. It's punishment, friends, to not receive the fruit of your labor. That's the basic physical world Old Testament principle. If you sow, you should reap. Punishment says you don't get to reap after you've sown. But then we have Amos 9.13. Turn to Amos 9.13, about nine pages to the left in your Bible, Amos 9.13. At the end of the book of Amos, we run into great promises of God for the restoration of Israel. Yahweh issues great promises of Israel being rebuilt in that day. One great promise is made in agricultural terms, and it's a promise that boggles the mind. Yahweh promises a season of fruitfulness so vast that the traditional understanding of sowing, then reaping, then harvest becomes blurred by continual sowing and reaping and harvesting. We read in Amos 9.13, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman, sower, will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, reaper, will overtake him who sows seed. When the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will melt. Friends, this is the grace of God for Israel. He has glory days planned for her when reaping and sowing are simultaneous. Where once Israel was physically punished by Yahweh and she lost the reward of the harvest of all of her sowing, so too and greater still will come a day when grace and blessing will abound and are coming in harvesting glory days when sowing and reaping will never stop. These glory harvesting days must be understood in a physical sense, and we know that they will be because we believe that Jesus will reign on earth literally from the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But also, there is a spiritual sense to these words, even as we see happening with Jesus' visit in Samaria 2,000 years ago in John chapter 4, where you can turn back to now. Turn to John 4:36. At the incarnation of Jesus, when God was made flesh, during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus gives the preview of the harvesting glory days of Israel when he takes his preaching and salvation ministry on the road straight north from Jerusalem into Samaria. And of his own free will, Jesus overcomes all of the objections, rebellion, hostility, and failed theology of a Samaritan woman by sowing truth into her heart and reaping the same day the spiritual harvest of her salvation, of her soul. And so great a salvation had she received that she had to share it with the men of Sychar who are captivated with the thought of Messiah and on their way to Jacob's well now to meet Jesus. Jesus takes this ministry moment to express to his disciples the concerns of spiritual harvesting. You see that in your notes. The concerns of spiritual harvesting. Jesus' mini-commissioning sermon continues with the concerns of reaping and sowing as Jesus says in Verse 36 of chapter 4, even now, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. The mind set on the flesh wants a direct correlation 
between my sowing and my reaping, my planting and my harvesting. In our flesh, we want to be paid for our labor. We have the right to compensation based on how gifted we are at planting and sowing, and so we, in our flesh, fight for our right to be justly compensated. But should we spend our lives fighting for our rights for just compensation like Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Do we always earn what is right and good and just? Is that what you ultimately want? A direct correlation between your work and your wages? How many of you are even overpaid now for the jobs that you do? Is this not the way of... Friends, this, this is the way of the world. It is not the way of the spiritual world, however, at all. You see, in the spiritual world, righteousness is credited to the one who does not work but the one who has faith in Jesus. That's not fair, friends. That's not just. That's just grace. You don't want just compensation the way that so many people in this world want to be justly compensated as they feel like their good outweighs their bad. You don't want that. You don't want that justice. You need grace. In the matter of spiritual harvesting, you don't get to reap all that you've sown because spiritual harvesting glory is mutual glory, together glory, cooperative glory, the glory of sowers and reapers rejoicing together in the harvest they mutually produce. John MacArthur says, in the agricultural realm, the same farmer who sows the seed usually reaps the harvest, but that is often not the case in the spiritual realm. And nor, friends, should it be the case in the spiritual realm. It must be the case that we see and enjoy the sweet togetherness of shared sowing and reaping, continual planting and harvesting for spiritual salvation. Leon Morris says, the reaper is not in any way competing with the sower. In fact, he is cooperating with the sower, for reaping is simply completing the work that the sower commenced. And so it is, says Morris, that the sower and the reaper rejoice together. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we have happening at Community Bible Church. Many of you serve in children's ministry, and I would say that many more of you need to. Just a little plug there. Children's ministry labor is spiritual seed sowing. It's the long game in salvation. It takes years of cultivating, watering, weed picking, to see the gospel seed that you plant grow into salvation and spiritual maturity. Sowing gospel seeds in the children's ministry is a labor of love that does not require that you are the one at that moment that that child receives the salvation that God purposed from eternity past, which you help to sow into their heart over years. You don't have to be there for that moment. But you will rejoice together with those who do the spiritual reaping when the Lord saves that child 20 years down the road at God's appointed time. This is one great joy that we all share in service to Jesus. We are one team of sowers and reapers sharing in each other's ministry success. When studying John 4.36, you could ask the question, to whom is Jesus referring when he says, even now? I understand that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are both sowing and reaping at this point. And I believe it is Jesus' great joy to rejoice together with the Samaritan woman over the course of the next two days of glory in the spiritual harvest that happens in her hometown, Sychar. William Hendrickson says, in the realm of the spiritual, it is the usual thing that one man reaps and another has, where another has sown. Each kingdom worker is at the same time a reaper and a sower. D.A. Carson says, no Christian harvester can ever justly forget that success in reaping normally depends on the work of those who have gone before. Brothers and sisters, consider those who have gone before. Not just the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, but all of the faithful men and women who have led Bible studies for you. 
stayed late to talk with visitors and clean up, went, to the door, went door to door in neighborhoods around the church to share the gospel, even those who have written children's ministry curriculum to plant the seed of Jesus into the hearts of children. Today, at Community Bible Church in Mead, Washington, we stand on the shoulders of spiritual sowing and reaping giants. Even at this time, we are watching the biggest children's ministry spiritual seed sowing giant among us head off into glory with Jesus. And I'm wondering... Who will fill her giant spiritual seed-sowing shoes? Our sister sowed spiritual gold into the fields of lives all over ministry in the local church for greater than 40 years. She blessed all of us as the most gracious, humble, patient sower of seed. We rejoiced in many spiritual harvests, and she rejoiced in many in her lifetime. We praise the Lord for the together joy that we shared with this spiritual giant. Those graced with saving faith get to share in the joy. The joy of sowing, reaping, harvesting together with the saints. This is our commission, just as it was first Jesus' commission of the disciples, which we read in verse 38 where Jesus says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Others here can mean everyone from Moses to the Old Testament prophets to John the Baptist to Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Our faith knows a long succession of devoted, loyal service to the Lord. Leon Morris says, it must, also, it, it must almost always, he says, be the case that those who reap precious souls profit from the work of those who have been before them. Each Christian worker is dependent on, on the success of the labors of their predecessors. He says, however, if the saying refers only to the contemporary scene, the others in this verse would be Jesus and the woman. Either way, friends, the point seems pretty clear. The disciples are being told, engage. Engage. Spiritually engage and join the spiritual harvest that you did not start. Go and be found reaping what you did not sow. This is their spiritual service of worship to Jesus. They've been given orders into the spiritual battlefield. Jesus personally gives his men the commission for spiritual harvesting. The commission for spiritual harvesting. You see that in your notes. The spiritual battlefield is set. But again, I might be mixing metaphors too much, so I'll get back to the agricultural one. The spiritual field of Samaria is white for the harvest. The reapers have their reaping orders. Now all we need is the right amount of time on the clock for the fullness of this great spiritual Samaritan salvation harvest, which brings us to the eighth of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling, the eighth of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. Number eight, two-day confession. Two-day confession, verse 39. By the fourth chapter of John's gospel, we've picked up on several of his recurring themes, especially the fact that John wants his audience to know that Jesus is God. John states his purpose for writing John in John 20, verse 31, where he says, But these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In order to stress that point, that Jesus is God, John effectively utilizes the testimony and confessions of saved men and women. John captures the glory of Jesus' deity from the mouths of those whom Jesus has saved. For the Apostle John, the story of the Samaritan woman is not complete, Without the mouths of mere men, even once theologically failed Samaritan men, confessing the deity of Jesus Christ, which is what we see as we read John chapter 4, verse 39, where John reports, From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore witness. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. 
And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is the confession the Apostle John wanted to share in this story. The bus is driven to this grand conclusion, this pinnacle moment, this pinnacle confession, the Savior of the world confession coming out of the mouths of Samaritan men. What a glorious harvest. These men were introduced to the Savior of the world by a Samaritan woman. What a glorious harvest we've come to. James Boyce says this miniature revival, is what he calls it, in Samaria, is then rounded off with the concluding testimony of these new believers concerning Jesus. These new believers called him the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, the text seems to indicate that we've got two many revivals in Samaria or two many spiritual harvests, you could say. But we must ask, what is the source of the spiritual harvest, these many revivals? From where does this spiritual harvest grow up? Where did it come from? What spiritual food was feeding all of this spiritual fruit? What food? What food? Deuteronomy 8.3, the Word of God. Let's see it. We see first, we see the harvest of her words. We see first here the harvest of her words. John reports in chapter 4, verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who bore testimony, who bore witness. He told me all that I have done. The, Samaritan, the saved Samaritan woman became a witness for Jesus and she was immediately put to work and used by Jesus to create the first of two spiritual harvests. Her word, what she spoke, the things that she shared was believed. How did that happen? Friends, this is a woman, first century. Women's testimony was not highly valued in the first century. Here again we see Jesus' choice to bring salvation to this woman honors all women and establishes women's value and worth. It's being tied up in his person, in his testimony. As a person, she herself was not trustworthy. After salvation, Jesus entrusts to her his message that she will deliver it and perfectly represent him to the men in her city. Her credibility is tied to her salvation in Jesus. Her identity and value are fixed in Him. Ladies, this is so important for you to hear. Her witness of Jesus was the source of her credibility, believability, and spiritual emancipation from her slavery to sin. That she knew the content of the character of Jesus and that she delivered it. This is where her identity came from. What made her believable? Her testimony, her words, the content of her message. Interestingly, John says the content of her message was the logos, the word. Do you see it in your Bible? The word. The Greek construction of John 4.39 says very literally, they believed through the logos of the woman testifying. Oddly enough, several of your Bibles don't capture the content of what she was sharing. The ESV doesn't do it. The NIV doesn't do it. Even the King James has a little flip in there. She was speaking of the Logos. She was speaking the Word. The Word was the content of her testimony. Logos, the Word, is an important word in the Gospel of John, especially when you just go back to the opening verse, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is making a point here in John 4, 39 about the content of her message. She was giving testimony about the Logos, the Word, Jesus. John MacArthur says, surely we can assume that she gave the details of his supernatural knowledge, not just this summary comment that was reported. 
Edward Clink says, it is hard not to see the use of this particular term in light of the prologue in John's gospel, making emphatic that the message of the woman was entirely centered on the, def- on the definitive word, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what a joy for her to shamelessly share with the men in her hometown who know the depths of her depravity and have thought so poorly of her for so long, for, for her to now share with them Jesus, that he knows her personally. And she has come to know a whole lot about him. But you know what? Don't take my word for it. Go see for yourself. Go get the answers to the questions yourself. The harvest of her word is belief. This is what the Apostle John wants and what Jesus wants. Belief. In Jesus. All this belief in Samaria means we have a mini revival number one, which then launches mini revival number two, as we now have a flock of men heading out of Sychar to Jacob's will to talk with Jesus. These believing Samaritan men are interested, they're eager, they're willing to ask for a favor. Would you please stay? They're willing to show hospitality to a stranger, they're unhindered by ethnic hatred or bigotry toward Jews. Their disposition at this point of the story is remarkable. Their request for Jesus to stay with them indicates how quickly the spiritual seed sown by the woman who was speaking the logos, the word, was taking root in their hearts. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that the spiritual seed was now beginning to grow in them. Jesus matches their remarkable behavior by honoring their request to stay His willingness demonstrates his love, his desire, his timely coming and great concern to seek and to save that which is lost. He loves these Samaritans, not because they are lovely or lovable, but because he has always chosen to love these ones specifically who will believe because of God's predetermination from eternity past to save them. And so he gives them two days of his personal time to invest in them. What incredible grace. Really makes me wonder how often in the craziness of our busy lives and our busy schedules, racing over here to this event and racing over there to that event, would you find it to be the case that you would just stop for two days to harvest spiritual food? What was needful for the fullness of the Samaritan spiritual harvest? What was the spiritual fruit of these two days? What happened in this time? Second, we see the harvest of his words. We saw the harvest of her words and the fruit that it produced. But we see second in the text, we see the harvest of his words. As John reports in verse 41, And many more believed because of his word. What Greek word do you think that is? Take a guess. That's logos, the same as her word. That's the same word. Same word. This is the second spiritual harvest. Jesus and the Samaritan woman had sown, and Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and now the disciples will all reap a great spiritual harvest in Samaria together. We're not given exact numbers, but many more believers is not a modest amount of salvation going on in Jesus' grace at this time. This was significant. The saved Samaritan woman's testimony headlined a massive spiritual harvest. Many in Sychar believed in Jesus. The cause of greater belief in Samaria was his word. Minds and hearts are changed by the content of his word. Again, here we have word, which is logos. They believed because Jesus' logos, his word, the content of his revelation was unquestionably focused on himself, his person. Logos can be a very general term for words and sayings. No question about it. It's used over 1,200 times in the New Testament, logos. But it's just impossible to believe that in this context, that logos means general conversational sayings. What do we know Jesus was sharing for two days? We know that he was sharing the glory of his deity. He was sharing his person that he is the word of God, God's unique son. 
We know this was the content of Jesus' revelation to them because of the harvest of their confession. John reports in verse 42, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. In no way are these believers demeaning the word of the woman who testified about Jesus. After all, the content she shared about Jesus was perfectly true, extremely helpful, appropriate, necessary, sincere, humble, and it was well-received. Their confession simply highlights the need for all believers to hear from Jesus personally, to know Him as Savior, Redeemer, Friend. His words have force and power unlike any other man who ever lived because he is God, which is why you today need to be found reading your Bible, which is his word. It speaks of him with the same power and authority. The woman's testimony ended with a question for them to answer. Jesus' testimony answered all of their questions. John MacArthur says, their words were not intended to denigrate her testimony at all, but rather to indicate that their time with Jesus confirmed her words. There was nothing missing in the woman's words, testimony about Jesus, yet who could ever be faulted for wanting to receive living water from the natural spring, Jesus himself? These Samaritans quickly secured two days in the Time, in, in time with the living water delivery man and heard for themselves truth taught by truth. D.A. Carson says, the peculiar witness of Jesus himself is more powerful and wonderful yet. And that's what they went after. Jesus' two-day stay worked out well for everyone and it resulted in their splendid two-day confession. Verse 42, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the savior of the world. James Boyce says this great phrase, the Savior of the world, concludes John's story and is therefore particularly significant. He says, of course, no one really wanted a Savior of the world in Christ's day. You understand that, right? Boyce says, the Jews wanted a Savior for Jerusalem, and the Samaritans wanted a Savior for Samaria. And friends, what happens here? Jesus ended the ethnic hatred and religious hostility inside the hearts of these Samaritans. With great clarity, they have come to understand Jesus is the only Savior the world will ever know. Savior of the world does not mean that the Samaritans nor the Apostle John thought that Jesus would sacrifice his life as the Lamb of God to pay the sin debt of every man who ever lived. They didn't believe that. Jesus is not the Savior of those who go to hell. Jesus is the Savior of all those who believe in Him through the whole world, regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you've done, what group you belong to. He is impartial in salvation. He'll save anybody. This is the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Savior of the world is a glorious title harvested from the mouths of Samaritan men based on the content of Jesus' words shared with them over two days. The Samaritans happily dumped their failed theology to embrace the Savior of the world. Jesus went out of his way to arrive at Jacob's well in Samaria right on time to deliver salvation into the soul of a seedy Samaritan woman who would help save many others also. She, friends, was unashamed to confess Jesus as her Messiah. The strength of her evangelism was powered by the strength of Jesus' living water, which washes away sins through forgiveness. And so the question goes, what about you? Do you need a Savior? How would you do on a test of your spiritual character? Do you know the living water forgiveness of your sins through belief in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Is Jesus your Savior? How important is sharing Jesus with others? You know, if this message is true, it should be on our tongues every second of every day. How often are you evangelizing the lost? When and where do you bear witness to the content of Jesus' character? Do you share the word? Do you share the word? Do you have two days to commit to sharing Jesus with others, or is life just too busy to be bothered with sharing living water that might save someone's soul? How committed are you to the great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations? The call on our lives becomes very clear.
the Savior of the world has commissioned us to sow the gospel and reap the spiritual harvest together, mutually, cooperatively, sowing and reaping, as it were, without bias, bigotry, prejudice toward women, toward men, black, yellow, red, brown, wealthy, homeless. This gospel goes to everybody. Everyone needs this without bigotry, without prejudice, from Mead, Washington to Leon, Spain, and everywhere in between. Pray with me. You are the Savior of the world, Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that the content of the Word was shared with us And having received the word, our eyes were opened and our blocked deaf ears were made to hear in the power of the Spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world, that through the power of the Spirit and the strength and truth of this message and the forgiveness that we've received, that you will loosen our mouths and loosen our tongues that we would freely, readily, willingly pour this message of grace on all of those whom we come in contact, believing the best about your desire to save every single one that you bring us in contact with. You will save for your glory. Would you make us vessels to bring glory to this world? helping you in your salvation. We want to see spiritual harvest. Make us faithful sowers and reapers. We receive our commission. Help us to live it in Jesus' name, amen.